when you know that your client knows you're on the same team, that, that you want that success and joy and you're in that moment and you're sharing it and that interfering behavior is absent. It is a feeling that I wish I could give everyone because it is euphoric. Each day across the country, there are thousands of incredible Centria team members working to better the lives of autistic individuals. We will be highlighting the journey of these remarkable people and getting their unique perspective on how they stay connected to the mission in their positions. And then I'll connect their story to a principle in behavior analysis to further illuminate the application of our science. We're your hosts. I'm Timothy Yeager. And I'm Lisa Cunningham. And this is the Do Wonders Podcast. It is so great to talk to you, Lisa. Thanks for joining me. Hi, Timothy. It's good to be here. First off, tell the audience who you are and what do you do for Centria? My name is Lisa Watson. I am a BCBA. I am a supervising clinician um, in the Pacific Northwest, particularly in Oregon. And I am also the center director at our Beaverton Autism Center. Awesome. You have a lot on your plate and you do a great job uh, with it. I'm really excited to like get to know you better and just talk about your journey here. How'd you get in the field of ABA? Accidentally, actually. Um, I wish I had some compassionate story about how my heart led me here, but actually that's not what happened. I was working as a mental health clinician in Alaska for the Division of Mental Health. Um, and we got kind of a outreach from some folks there saying, hey, we don't have any BCBAs and ABA therapy is about to be um, paid for by insurance and we don't have anybody that can do it. Would anybody be interested in joining a cohort? And I said, well, you know, I might be interested in learning about it, but I'm definitely not interested um, in practicing. And then after the first class, I literally thought, where has this been my whole life? And I fell in love with the practice of ABA. And I came to- You were living in Alaska? I was. I spent a good eight years of my life in Alaska. Uh, Very much enjoyed it. Um, But it is kind of cold there, Timothy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I've heard. Um, So at some point you moved to Portland. Yes. Which is, uh, while not as cold, I I guess I could see a very similar type Mm of- with life and like outdoor experience. Um, can you tell me a little bit about like Lisa outside of work? <laughs> um, I'm pretty similar in and out of work, actually. I think uh, when you <laughs> meet me, I am who I am. <laughs> and I love the outdoors. I love to kayak, hiking. Um, and that's what brought me back to the Pacific Northwest. I took a little stint over in North Carolina where my family lives. And while I enjoy it, it, I just missed the scenery and I missed the lifestyle. And a friend of mine was actually uh, interviewing with Sentry and said, hey, uh, they're hiring. You want to talk to the recruiter? And I was like, eh, I don't know. It's going to take a lot to pull me away. Talked to the recruiter. And I was like on a plane like in a week. I don't know what happened, but <laughs> I came on mm-hmm. out. And when was that? Uh, that was in 2019. Wow. That's awesome. Let's talk your experience at Sentry. So... Let me get this straight. You were in Alaska and interviewed for a job. 
and moved as a result of that? Well, I was in Alaska, um, started my cohort to become a BCBA, but I was a practicing mental health clinician. Um, and my former husband was active duty military and he passed away while serving. So I moved to North Carolina to be with my family and my four kiddos. And that was great support, loved it. But then a friend of mine was interviewing with Centria. I already had my BCBA at this point and said, hey, why don't you interview? Did, loved it. And so I moved out to the Portland area and started working with Centria out in the field and loved that. And then there was a need at the center and found myself at the center with a lot of great ideas on how to improve it. So the AVP at the time, Kelly DeCosta said, well, those are great ideas. And guess what? You get to do them. <laughs> and so that's how I, I got <laughs> in the center. That's awesome. Let's talk about your experiences um, after that. Do any like specific experiences come to mind when you think about your, your time at the Beaverton Center? Yes. I think that for me, there's been times with Century. I think the tremendous growth. I, I, I feel, you know, like when your grandparents are sitting in the chair and they're like, you don't remember when. I feel like I do that sometimes because the Centria <laughs> I met in 2019 is not the Centria that I am experiencing currently. A lot of the same similar great people are still here, but I love what's happening in our agreed collective consciousness to do better work. And that really started, I'd say, maybe two years ago um, with just this general feeling like, are, are we providing the best services that we can? And are we serving the children that we should be serving, the clients that we should be serving? So there was a kind of a introspective look. And then from that came, what could we do collectively to train everyone to do best practice? It's one thing to say it, it's another thing to ensure that people have access to it. Um, enter SBT, um, and that was another kind of just right place, right time thing. Um, my RCD said, would you be interested in doing it? It's, it's based on Greg Hanley's work, and I was like, what? Sure, of course I want to do that. So um, uh, last year in January, um, I started um, with the pilot in PNW, um, and I've been with with the pilot ever since. Um, still working with Hillary with uh, kind of a goal of moving on and, and getting some credentialing in that. It has been, I don't know, I think people say this to you all the time, Timothy. It's been life changing, and it and it has. I don't want to, you know, it sounds so goofy to say it. But once you have that shift in the way you look at practice, you can't go back. And the old you kind of makes you sad. You're like, oh, I can't believe I did that. So I would say what I've been able to do since practicing with this shift has been monumental. The things that I have seen just, I, I don't know how to summarize it for you any better. Did you see it? it was January? It's been a year? Yeah, it's been a year. Can you believe it? Wow. I know. <laughs> I remember, yeah, um, for our audience. So some background there. Um, as an organization, we're moving towards uh, practical functional assessment um, and skills-based treatment being our standard approach to treating all clients that have any type of like problematic behavior. Um, with the goal of starting care in this uh, in this method for every client that starts at Centria, and um, 
our first approach at implementing the model that we're implementing now was with Lisa in, in the Beaverton Center. And a year ago today, or a year ago, like this this month, we were sitting in a in a small room in the back, you know, watching through a Zoom <laughs> as as you implemented the PFA. Um, and a group of us were cheering, excited, sweaty, nervous. <laughs> um, and and in that first day, saw magic happen. Yeah. Um, and uh, you have been a, uh, a source of reinforcement for me and a source of motivation for, for our organization to, to replicate what's happening uh, uh, in your center across the entire organization. Um, let's, let's just dig in there for a little bit with SBT and just, um, maybe just talk about, um, you know, so you've been doing it for a year now. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's... You know, what's a client experience? What's a, what's a moment that you've had that uh, you're going to hold on to um, as a BCBA and, and as a person? I think for me, there's there's been so so many over the year, that, which is great to say. For me, that moment when I realized that this works, and I, that sounds so silly, but, you know, there's always that doubt. Um, and I think that's part of who we are is, is, is behavior analysts, right? Like, I don't think this is going to work. Skeptical. Yeah, I, I was, yep. I was skeptical. But when I saw my client look toward me and say, okay, giving that tolerance response with trust, there, there was, it, it's hard to capture it in words when you know that your client knows you're on the same team, that, that you want that success and joy and you're in that moment and you're sharing it and that interfering behavior is absent. It is a feeling that I wish I could give everyone because it is euphoric to experience that. And, and I have had the joy to experience that multiple times because of this practice and so much faster than what I had been doing before. And it starts from connecting with the client. When I meet a client now, I just relax. I just watch, I observe. Um, I like to think that clients come in with their own tune and I got to figure out how to dance to it. And mm. now I do it easily. And I say to everyone, I'm listening and I'm figuring out the dance. And it might change day to day, but that's okay because in my toolbox, I have the tools I need to figure out how to dance. I love that. The metaphor of dance is, is one that uh, speaks a lot to me. As, as, as an effective dance is one on which both partners are, are, you know, vibing off each other, right? Or are learning from each other or moving in some type of symbiotic relationship with each other. And um, when ABA therapy goes wrong <laughs> is when it's not a symbiotic relationship, when it's uh, compliance driven, when the, the therapist or the, or the analysts are, are not learning from their client and they're expecting their client to learn from them. Um, and um, it, you know, what you described is, is that one of our goals of this process, which is a therapeutic alliance. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe a, um, 
we could like talk through that and like what are the outcomes that you've seen with your clients as a result of getting to that therapeutic alliance, as a result of getting to that trust and that rapport? Um, have, have you seen like differential outcomes with clients that you just didn't expect to happen um, prior to this approach? Yes, absolutely. Um, most recently, um, had this client in services, um, I think he's been with Sentry a couple years. Little guy, six years old, um, a lot of vocal protesting sounds, um, does not use words, um, and aggression. And parents, I believe, were losing faith in us. I could see this through utilization. Um, when I joined the team, the client was maybe coming 15 hours a week out of the 35 recommended, dwindling down to 13. And Coincidentally, got ill and was was put on hold for a little while. When the family came back um, to services, I was like, I just don't know if I'm the right person for the job. You know, I, I seem to be failing. And so it, I was fortunate enough to be able to spend some time with Hillary and just talk through this case with her. And she said, maybe you just have an honest con conversation. Maybe just talk to the parents and say, I don't think I've delivered what I need to deliver. And here's what I want to try with your kiddo. And it's maybe not going to look like traditional ABA. And you might think I'm doing nothing. It's going to look like a lot of nothing at first, but I am doing something. If you could just trust me, right? Because at this point they want results. And I, and I think that's the catch 22, right? When we pull back and say, I'm going to try this approach and you haven't gotten results yet. And it's really going to look like you're not going to get results. <laughs> you know, I don't, it's a hard sell, right? And so I did have that conversation with them. And then I went to their insurance company and I sat down with them and said, I'm going to ask you for a whole lot. I want a whole lot right now. And here's what I want. And here's why I want it. And I got it. And so then I felt like I better perform. <laughs> and what has happened is this kiddo is coming to session on time, staying for the duration. He is following one step direction. He is looking towards his therapist to show her cool things. Um, mm. and we are barely placing any demand at this point. I mean, we're at the very early stages and here's the best part, Timothy, he's not had over 30 hours of therapy and, uh, that's where we're at already. And, uh, first day I, I will say it was not pleasant. Second day was a little mm. less not pleasant, but by third day we are rocking and he is leading the way he's using visual three pictures of what he wants to do. Um, it, it's just a amazing and mom is communicating with us via text she's showing up early to talk with us she wants to see pictures she's checking in she's asking questions this was a parent that would literally hide outside the door until it was time run and grab her kid and run away and in mm. less than 30 hours that's the power of it wow it's remarkable and there's a lot of things you said there that resonate with me um one is this uh we hear this idea, you know, just like as a lay person, like sometimes you have to go slow to go fast. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes we expect it just to go fast. And and that is some of the pushback against this approach is at first it may feel as if you're doing nothing. It may feel as if progress isn't occurring. But our data as an organization just don't align with that, mm -hmm. right? Like clients are, are learning more as a result of going slow initially and learning and building this, you know, this alliance. And 
and really building trust. And you know, we're, we're asking a lot of our clients uh, to like face challenges, to work through difficult things. And it just makes sense that you'd want to do that with someone that you trust mm-hmm. and someone that's there to support you, someone that's there to know you. Um, it's powerful. How has this uh, impacted um, your ability to like support technicians um, as they're working with uh, clients that may be challenging at times? I think for the technicians that haven't started um, utilizing the SBT approach directly in the center, we've just switched the way we interact with all clients and supporting them where they are in that moment and really deciding is the demand something we need to push or not. And that's, that is based on safety and client dignity. Every decision starts with, is this safe? Is it necessary? Does it protect client dignity? And, and when you have that message, it, it transcends to the staff. Do the staff feel safe? Are we protecting their dignity? Do they feel valued part of the decisions that we are making in client treatment? So when I approach a client who might be in distress, I look at the, the technician and say, what's going on? How can I help? How can I support? Um, and that encourages them to problem solve and be that advocate for their client and what they need. And if you feel valued at work and you feel like you are contributing in a safe, supportive environment, that is awesome. And that creates connection. And it is all based on trust and that mutual respect. And I have seen significantly less uh, tech turnover. Um, mm. And the folks that are there, they're happy. I, I, I feel the energy there. And when a client has success, other technicians are cheering they're like yes because they they see it right and they're excited about it it is i kind of call it it's kind of a group sport right like like we're all we're all contributing to the success of all of the clients yeah I'm trying to remember the hanley quote uh, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to paraphrase it which is like i don't know why you're engaging the behavior that you're engaging but i'm not going to work to change that behavior until i fully understand and um I think what what you're demonstrating um, at the Beaverton Center and the culture shift that that you're talking about is you know, a deep commitment to to our clients that we're going to know you and we're going to understand and we're going to partner with you and and we're not here to empower or, or to force compliance and you know force our values or our, our goals upon you that we're we're working together with you and that as like an underlying culture of the center is one that's empowering to everyone that's there. And, and really happy to see that. And I'm really happy to be there in two weeks um, when we uh, when I get to see you in person. Um, one thing I wanted to talk about, um, uh, you mentioned dance. Um, I just wrote that note down. Um, you know, part of our Do Wonders podcast is to talk a little bit about the science that we study and the metaphor of dance um, can also be described um, in our science as interlocking contingencies. And um, uh, in 
for those that are listening, interlocking contingency is, uh, so let me get the definition here. Uh, I was typing it up uh, <laughs> just to make sure I don't mistake while it's being recorded. Um, uh, but an interlocking contingency is, uh, um, involves interactions of two or more individuals. Um, in this interaction, um, any element of an individual behavioral contingency functions as an environmental event for the, the behavior of another individual. And so the metaphor of a dance, the environmental event could be my dance partner moves in a certain way, and that functions as an antecedent for, for me to move in that way, right? And then vice versa, I move in a certain way, then my dance partner, that's an environmental event, probably a consequence to their behavior, as well as an antecedent to their future behavior of them moving in a certain way. Um, the reason why the, the, the metaphor of dance resonates, it's one that I, I use a lot um, in, in my past, and that effective therapy is an interlocking contingency to where um, the client's behavior and the technician's behavior um, are, are, are interlocking in the sense that uh, there is this relationship of, of learning and continuing to learn about each other. And what I appreciate about um, the values of practical functional assessment and skills-based treatment is it's really setting the, the occasion of like, that is the goal. So like, we're gonna learn from each other and we're going to dance through this process towards our goal. Um, and then you as an effective supervising clinician and BCBA, like, their behavior, technician and clients interlocking with your behavior so that their behavior functions as an antecedent to you to understand like, what do I need to reinforce, what do I need to like, prompt, what do I need to coach differently. Um, and, um, and interlocking contingencies can go even larger. And I think you started off with um, uh, talking about some of the cultural shifts at Centria and if you look at any of the research, or a lot of the articles around interlocking behaviors or contingencies, it's often around cultural change and the cultural uh, uh, perspective. And Century is a more effective company right now because we are, uh, our behaviors are interlocked. Um, uh, departments are working together, departments are learning from each other. Um, and I think in a large degree what you Describe as what you're feeling, and then cultural change is uh, um, we're dancing together as an organization and departments, and, and sometimes we step on each other's feet. Sometimes we gotta <laughs> learn, and like we miss a dance step. Um, but uh, um, I've talked a lot of late about interlocking contingencies, and when we think about training techs effectively, one of our values is just uh, embracing every moment or making you know, every moment matter. And to make every moment matter in therapy is one where everybody's learning, client and tech and analyst. Last question here, I ask everyone, what's your why? Like what, what motivates you, what drives you? You know, what, 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 what is the, the reason that you continue to do the job that you're doing and, and excelling in it? I believe because I can, I should deliver the best practice possible and that I should connect and engage with my clients, my team, my technicians, my families, so that I can continue to learn from them to become better 
I feel compelled to do that because of the awesome outcomes. You know, we talk about interlocking contingencies. It is reinforcing to be successful. It is. And it, it is motivating. And I love getting feedback that gives me information to change how I am doing things for the better. Um, that's, that is my why it, it is probably more selfish than most people that come onto this, onto this podcast, <laughs> but it is reinforcing. I go to work because I love what I do. I love it. Um, I think that's, uh, I wouldn't call that selfish. I call that honest. And uh, it's one of the powers of the science and, and the practice that we have is that we can, directly see impact we can directly see the improvement of quality of life in our inner clients and if that's not reinforcing if that does not speak to your motivations then you're in the wrong job right and so i i, I appreciate your response um uh, just to let you know um uh, seeing your like being part of your uh, work and getting to know you over the years, part of my why. Um, oh, thank you. Seeing the excitement, the, the, the passion with which you speak about the work that we're doing and, and just knowing that there are employees specifically like you that are engaged in the work and excited about what we're doing as an organization um, allows me to push through the hard times. And so um, there was no better person for me to have as the, the first, uh, um, guest on season two of this podcast uh, than you. And so I thank you for the work and I, I look forward to, to seeing you in person in a couple of weeks. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. Um, it's always a good time hanging out with you. I appreciate it. Even when we're in a cab going to Utica, it's a good time. That's a, that's a story for another <laughs> day. The cab driver is about to fall asleep. <laughs> good time. Yeah. Thanks, Lisa. <laughs> thank you. And that concludes another episode of us telling the stories of our incredible staff and their work to support our powerful mission. Until next week, do wonders. Do wonders.